0: It's time for Legally Speaking. Joining us remotely today is Michael Mulligan from Mulligan
1: Defense Lawyers. Michael, good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I uh, can't uh, complain about uh, joining you remotely as I'm uh, currently looking out on a uh, uh, nice view in Hawaii
0: in hawaii you're joining us from today thank you so much for making some time for us it's been seven days since you helped us understand the various legal options the government of british columbia had at its disposal to cause a timely and fair end to the current labor dispute in district 63 as far as i know no such option has yet been engaged i think we're starting on that topic today are we not
1: yes uh, and i think some of the history of that section is important and it uh... I think it informs why it hasn't yet been uh, triggered. And we spoke last week about the provisions of Section 72 of the Labour Relations Code. And that's the section of the Labour Relations Code that permits a service to be designated as an essential service uh, so as to require some minimal level of essential service to be provided. And it's part of the managed strike regime we have in British Columbia. Um, it's this provision that would prevent, for example, um, all emergency room nurses from going on strike or the fire department from going on strike. And the language which is in the section speaks about um, preventing a, uh, something which would pose a danger to the currently health, safety or welfare of the residents of British Columbia. Um, and that particular language has changed over the years. And it's part of the uh, flip-flop that occurs in uh, B.C. labor relations each time the government changes uh, uh, between the NDP and the uh, alternative to the NDP, liberals or social credit or whatever it might have been in the past. Um, And interestingly, the most recent change in that uh, ongoing flip-flop in British Columbia uh, occurred uh, in April of this year um, as a result of what was Bill 30, and that was a uh, amendment to the Labor Relations Code. Uh, and uh, people may recall that one of the sticking points uh, in the package of proposed amendments this year um, included a proposal to permit the certification of unions without the benefit of a secret ballot. Yes. Uh, the current government wished to move to a method that didn't involve a secret ballot, and the The Green Party said, we will not support you if you keep that in. So that got removed. But one of the sections uh, that did get amended uh, was, in fact, the section that we spoke about, the Section 72 of the Labour Relations Code. Up until that bill, this April, that language that talks about um, safety and well-being of British Columbians also included language that made it an essential service for this the provision of educational programs for students and eligible children under the school act. Uh, that was, until April, when that new legislation expressly um, designated as an essential service. Wow, so hold on, just
0: to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, the BC NDP government only a, sm- a short number of months ago changed the law to remove the explicit definition of provision of education as a provi- as an
1: essential service right before all this happened? that's exactly correct wow um and they're likely to see the fallout of that not only with this protracted strike in saanich but as a result of what appear to be floundering talks with the teachers teachers generally in the province so we may see real impact from this uh, over the coming uh, months uh, as there are likely to be further labor disputes involving exactly this wow now I should say, even though they removed the express language, which until very recently expressly designated um, uh, education to be an essential service, the language that remains has been previously interpreted by the labor relations board to cover that. Although it may be more ambiguous and require more time to argue about, you know, what exactly what portions of uh, education. Uh, amount to an essential requirement to preserve the welfare of the residents of British Columbia. So by removing the express provision that made it clear that uh, this was an essential service, it uh, could lead to more argument and rancor over what exactly is covered. But as you'll recall, to trigger any of this, the first step would either be one of the parties, and only the employer would do this, asking a Labor Relations Board to investigate it, or uh, after that report is prepared, or on his own initiative, um, the minister, uh, Harry Baines, would need to take action to designate uh, the service as an essential service. Now, here is the real politics of it. Uh, Harry Baines' uh, background, um, it's on the D.C. government webpage, included... Uh, His qualifications include 15 years as an elected officer of a steelworker's local. Uh, And so you might imagine how it is uh, that uh, somebody with that background who just introduced the legislation to remove um, education as an essential service would be entirely unmotivated uh, to engage the provisions that remain, even though... Uh, previous decisions indicate uh, that it would uh, still amount to an essential service. And if the minister refuses to act, the provisions are never being engaged, uh, and that is why uh, we're now in week three uh, of this strike.
0: I find it shocking, Michael, and I must profess my ignorance, I was not aware that the legislation was amended within the last year to remove the explicit mention of education as an essential service right before all this happened. I'm, I'm reeling to hear that.
1: Yes, and that amendment, of course, was introduced by the Minister, Harry Baines. Yes. So you have to ask yourself, uh, somebody who introduced legislation only recently to remove this as an essential service this year, uh, somebody whose background is as a uh, elected member of a uh, steelworkers' union, it's perhaps not at all surprising uh, that the government has uh, taken uh, no action uh, to put an end to the uh, continued strike. Indeed.
0: What else do we want to say about this file before we move on to the next story? Because this
1: is an important one. We're still following it actively. Well, I guess I would say this is likely to have much bigger implications in the uh, months to come because the negotiations with the uh, teachers province-wide appear to be floundering, I think to put it nicely. Indeed. So this is likely to be a problem that's going to uh, potentially engulf the province generally. And the big background there, of course, right, is you have a, um, you have a provincial government, w- which is uh, essentially their core of support are these unions. Um, and the government now is in the position of acting as the employer. And you have a large group of unions, including transit workers in Vancouver, the Saanich uh, support workers, and the teachers province-wide all of whom, no doubt, given the change of government, um, all are hoping for uh, some substantial improvement uh, in their uh, pay and benefits and so forth uh, as a result of the change of government. I suppose some people would say elections matter. They have an impact. Um, and one of the impacts here is that we have a, a government uh, that is politically aligned with the groups who are um, seeking Uh, improved pay and uh, benefits uh, and have uh, just engaged in that uh, decades-long swinging back and forth of the Labor Relations Code to expressly remove uh, education as an essential service. So we're likely to be in for um, some protracted labor disputes in part because we have a uh, government which is in this position of being supported by these very unions now acting in the role of the employer, uh, but still uh, needing to maintain um, sort of general support if they ever wish to be uh, elected again, because even though unions form the core of their support, they're not getting elected. Uh, on the basis of the union vote uh, alone. Indeed. Uh, And if you have uh, people not able to ride the bus and kids not in school, that's going to have a long-term political impact.
0: I want to take a quick break here. It's Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers joining us remotely. He's currently in Hawaii at the moment, offering us the benefit of his analysis and experience. Folks, I didn't know that, that it was removed as an essential service explicitly mentioned. I, I think Michael's absolutely right. Quick break. We'll continue our coverage in just a moment. Hello, Celine Dion here. Are you ready to be the VIP on my Courage World Tour? I got my own iHeart Radio will fly you for a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Soundcheck a backstage photo shoot with me, and I have some very special seats just for you. Well, see- We'll be flying you out to a secret location for this ultimate fan experience. For your chance to win, enter at iHeartRadio.ca. New album, Courage, available November 15th. You're in charge of hiring, and Indeed has solutions, like online skills tests, which let a candidate show that they are the right hire. And we give you free clones of your best employees. Actually, there aren't any clones, but there are online skills tests. Using Indeed skills tests reduces time to hire by 27% on average. Post your next job at indeed.com slash try now and try skills tests for free. Terms and conditions apply. Finding space in the fridge around the holidays is always a challenge. Well, Thrifty Foods has made it easier. Reserve your fresh turkey online and pick it up at the store at a time that's convenient for you. Just choose from Fresh Canada Grade A, Alex Campbell's Signature Series Traditional, Raised Without Antibiotics, or Organic Varieties. Hurry before they run out. Place your order today at thriftyfoods.com pickup. Last day to reserve a fresh turkey online is Wednesday, December 18th. Thrifty Foods. Be merry, eat happy. Okay, deep breaths. I am. Breathe deeply. Is someone here expecting a baby? Oh, hi, doctor. We We are. are. Dr. Hanley, extension 27. Excuse me, keep breathing. Yes? I'm sorry, doctor, but you set a call whenever Coit offers 40% off cleaning services. 40% off. Final
1: week. 40% off Coit? Yes, 40% off carpets,
0: upholstery, tile and grout, air ducts and more. Huh. Okay, ready to push? No, not yet. Call Coit. I am. We don't want to miss getting 40% off. Coit's 40% off sale ends this week, so call 1-800-4-Coit or order online at Coit.ca. Paying off your debt is a balancing act. Let's say you owe ten dollars or $20,000 on three different cards. You struggle to make a payment on one card and fall behind on another. Your interest rates begin to rise and your debt is totally out of control. That's why you need Consolidated Credit. We can help reduce your interest rates, cut your payments, and help you get out of debt fast. Consolidated Credit, you're one call away from financial freedom. Call 800-291-9820. 800-291-9820. That's 800-291-9820. You want a new floor, or you want your current floor redone. Either way, you have two questions. How much will it cost, and how long will it take? The answer to the first is, we'll get you a good deal. The answer to the second is, maybe two weeks, maybe two days. Yep, two days, because Camino Carpets has thousands of square feet of inventory. Could be exactly what you need. Camino Carpets and Flooring, they do this for a living, and they're very good at what they do. Camino.ca. Who is it? Who is it? You think you know someone. Grammy winners, Emmy winners, Hall of Fame players, and comedians. But how well do you know their voice? Megan Markle. Lady Gaga. Lindsay Lohan. Wednesday on CTV. You're all invited to play along. The international hit that has celebs singing in the most outrageous costumes. Look at them! I'm so freaking confused right now. They'll keep you guessing week after week. Man, this is tough. Who are you? The Masked Singer, television's musical sensation. All new, Wednesday at 8, only on CTV see a problem in traffic call us at star 1070 if it's happening it's here cfax 1070 this is adam sterling on cfax 1070 and this is legally speaking with michael mulligan from mulligan defense lawyers as we continue our conversation some good news on the legal aid front michael mulligan
1: Uh, Yes, Uh, and I must say this over the years has been uh, uh, a rare thing to receive uh, good news in this regard. So uh, I think this is uh, certainly one which would be a positive announcement from the provincial government. Um, And the announcement is this. Uh, The provincial government uh, has agreed to uh, provide $2 million in funding um, through an organization called the Law Foundation, Uh, in order to establish uh, eight poverty law clinics uh, around the province. So there's a little bit in there to be unpacked. First of all, what's poverty law? Uh, That would be things like um, assisting people with uh, uh, issues with uh, rental disputes, disability benefits, uh, and other legal issues that uh, arise uh, from uh, somebody who's experiencing poverty. So very important work. Um, And what is the law foundation? Well, The Law Foundation is an organization that gets most of its funding from the interest on lawyers' trust accounts. And the way that works is if you had money in trust with a lawyer, for example, to buy a home, the money might be in trust for some period of time before the home purchase went through, and that might generate some interest. Uh Uh, That interest doesn't go to the lawyer. It goes, uh, since 1969, to this Law Foundation which would do charitable work involving things like legal aid, public legal education, uh, and other good work of that sort. So the government's using this law foundation, using law foundation to administer these uh, grants, which will uh, allow for these uh, eight poverty law clinics to be set up. Um, and uh, I suppose there's an element of this which is, you know, everything old is new again, uh, because in British Columbia we used to have Um, legal aid offices all over the province. There were more than 40 of them. Uh, And back in 2002 when the legal aid uh, budget in the province was uh, cut by some 40%, all of those legal aid offices, the 42 of them all around the province, uh, were all shut. The most people there were fired. Um, And in the the last year before uh, all of those offices were shut, uh, there were in excess of 40,000 people uh, who went in uh, and received uh, help of the sort that I've described, this poverty law uh, services. They could also help with immigration issues, housing issues, uh, uh, disability issues, things like somebody trying to apply for disability benefits if they were injured or something of that sort. Mm. So very important work, which has simply been absent in most of the uh, uh, province since 2002. So I think it's uh, very good news that they're putting somebody into uh, Uh, funding this again Uh, and as well I think there is something to be said for the fact that they're going to do the funding through an external organization. Now on this occasion it's not through the Legal Services Society but through the uh, Law Foundation and the reason that can be important um, is that sometimes the legal advice or assistance that somebody would get uh, at a poverty law clinic might involve the government being on the other side of it. Like for example, let's say somebody was denied disability benefits and they were wanting to appeal that, Um, you wouldn't want to have the person who's helping you with that appeal to be an employee of the very government that you're trying to persuade to give you the benefits who doesn't want to do it. Indeed. So by having that little bit of uh, uh, disconnect between the funding and the um, uh, government, I think that's a, a wise move as well. So, for a relatively small amount of money, and this is a small amount of money, much less than what we had back in 2002, um, I think there's a whole lot of good to be done here. And there have been um, tens of thousands of people every year who needed that kind of help and simply had nowhere to go. Um, so, I, I think this is a, a very good, uh, a good step, and, and hopefully it will uh, continue. Uh, and there are a lot of people who genuinely need help, and I think uh, this has a, a good prospect of providing it. So. A, uh, a rare good news story on the legal aid front. So, very positive.
0: All right. I, I agree. It seems very promising. Uh, the quickest... W- I want to ask you a little bit about this story about UBC's law school and one Peter A. Allard, who was very generous and gave a sum of, I believe it was in excess of $30 million to the law school, but there are conditions that are a matter of dispute at the moment.
1: Yes, that's true. So this was a, a very generous gift to You he, he was somebody who was a graduate of the UBC Law School, um, and just a a few years ago, in 2014, uh, he made what amounted to the the largest donation to any law school in Canada. He gave the law school $30 million, which helped provide scholarships and I think helped them construct a a whole new building over there. Now, I must say, in terms of um, uh, how somebody... One of the terms of this was that uh, there be uh, his name, uh, Pierre, on the degrees granted by the university. They renamed the law school, the Peter Allard uh, School of Law. Mm -hmm. I think even his middle initials in there. Um, And the terms of the gift included uh, that his name appear on the degrees granted by the Mm -hmm. university. Now, the dispute that's arisen um, is that uh, somehow he discovered that the uh, postgraduate degrees that were being granted, people who had a LLM, like a master's degree in law, uh-huh. uh, or a doctorate in law, that those degrees didn't have his name on them. <laughs> uh, and uh, when he inquired into that, the explanation given was that those degrees aren't granted by the law faculty, they're granted by the, um, a different faculty that deals with postgraduate work. So that was the reason for that. So he decided to uh, take that to mediation or arbitration, the arbitrator ruled against him said, no, the school didn't have to put his name on those degrees because the law school doesn't grant them. It's another faculty that grants those degrees. Uh, but being dissatisfied with that, he's decided to launch a challenge in court to try to force the university to uh, add his name to those degrees. And I, I must say, uh, the decision to do that strikes me as about the fastest way to turn what uh, was a very generous uh, uh, donation uh, into something that appears uh, a little otherwise, trying to go to court and uh, force your name onto the uh, various degrees not actually issued by the uh, law faculty, and that uh, caused me to sort of wonder about the the broader question about um, gifts to universities and, and whether we ought to have things like naming rights uh, sold effectively. Uh, because this doesn't appear to be a circumstance where sort of the university in gratitude for the uh, very generous gift uh, decided on their own initiative to uh, rename the building or put a picture up or, or do something to recognize a very generous gift. But it now appears to be a contract, contract dispute uh, involving what exactly was to be provided in response to the uh, Uh, money that was provided so it's starting to look a lot more like a sponsorship agreement for an arena and a little bit less like a uh like a gift that it might have originally appeared to have been
0: all right interesting so um again the courts will make a, a decision potentially on that matter in due time but for the moment we uh we don't really know what the answer to the question is yet do we
1: no, we'll, we'll wait and find out. I'm, I'm just hoping that, uh, you know, we don't have Dunkin' Donuts or anything else sponsor the uh, law school over in Victoria with some similar condition that their name appear on every degree. Now,
0: so, uh, I may be mistaken, but I do believe that it is a matter of university policy that the name of any corporate entity is prohibited from being affixed to any either food outlet or similar undertaking within the ring of UVic itself. But I,
1: I would I would leave that one to the lawyers. Sure. I suppose we'll have to wait and see until Dunkin' Donut shows up with the offered $30, 000, $30 million Indeed. gift to construct some new building. Perhaps that uh, policy will be rethought. All right.
0: And uh, this is an interesting one because it pertains to the representative for children and youth in British Columbia and the need to be able to access records to carry out the duties of that office. What's the story?
1: Yes. So British Columbia has this representative for children and youth, and they serve essentially as a... Uh, watchdog, largely with respect to how the Ministry of Children and Families uh, operates, but their mandate isn't restricted to that, uh, and they're designed to ensure that uh, children are being treated properly for the representative for children and youth. Um, Now, this representative for children and youth uh, was interested in doing a uh, report uh, about uh, legal representation for children and youth uh, in the context of Um, family law disputes. So that would seem like the sort of thing that the representative for children and youth might uh, spend their day doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, In any case, uh, the representative uh, made a request for uh, information in the possession of the uh, British Columbia Attorney General's Ministry uh, about that funding so that uh, they could prepare their report. Uh, And in fact, the legislation that sets up the representative for children and youth uh, expressly provides that they have the right to information in the possession of a public entity. So one would have expected, given all of those things, the Attorney General's Ministry to turn over the information so that the representative could prepare their report. Uh, but instead of doing that, uh, the Attorney General's Ministry decide- decided to try to resist uh, turning over the information uh, to the uh, representative, arguing that they had no business preparing this sort of a report Uh, and in fact decided to litigate the matter, going off to uh, the B.C. Supreme Court, uh, trying to uh, avoid having to turn over the information that the representative for children and youth wanted. Uh, The judge on that application had none of it uh, and uh, ordered uh, the information requested to be turned over so that the representative uh, can prepare uh, their report. Um, the, The bigger takeaway there, I think, is one of of the attitude and approach to these things. And, and you would hope that uh, the government's knee-jerk reaction to requests of this sort wasn't to do whatever they could in their power to try and prevent uh, the information from being provided. Uh, that, to my mind, just seems like a poor use of resources and contrary to the spirit of these things, uh, when you have somebody whose uh, expressed purpose is to make sure that children and youth are being treated uh, properly, including in the justice system, Uh, you would hope that the approach would be provide whatever that person wants to prepare that report and and not try to use whatever legal argument you could come up with uh, to resist doing that because for heaven's sakes, wouldn't that money be better served or better used uh, helping children and youth uh, rather than litigating whether you need to give information information uh, to their representative uh, to prepare the report.
0: Well, indeed, litigation is often necessary, yet it is not always the highest and best use for those tax dollars, Michael. So I, I doubt there are many who would disagree with you on that.
1: Including the judge.
0: <laughs> Including the judge. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, as always, for joining us from uh, from the island of Hawaii today. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. look forward to it. All right. Thank you so much, as always, for offering us the benefit of your analysis and insight. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers every week here on a Thursday on CFAX 1070 as we enter the second half of our second hour. I look forward to this segment every week. I learn at least one new thing, hopefully once a week. I I try to learn new things every day, but today is a day that I learned something I did not know.